Hello and welcome to Cinephil's Take 17 uh, this week. Rob and I are going to discuss two films by Jim Jarmusch. Um, One is Ghost Dog and the other is Coffee and Cigarettes. Welcome, Rob. Uh, It's uh, good to finally um, do another episode. And I know we're both wrapping up our grading and that's been a a kind of a a priority for us. Uh, But it's uh, I I know I found time to watch these films and it helped a bit with the uh, stress of grading. Yeah, uh, it's, uh, I think, uh, more of a priority for the students and the institutions we work for. Uh, but yeah, I think uh, watching these films while grading definitely improved life for everybody involved. Uh, yeah, <laughs> including the students we're marking, I'm sure. Oh, yeah. You know, it's it's all right. Uh, watching Ghost Dog and uh, doing some grading. It, it was quite enjoyable. Yeah. So. Um, I love these films. Uh, I love Jarmusch. Um, but, uh, why don't you, uh, take us through them at the start and I'll, uh, chime in as, uh, we go along. Sure. So, you know, I, I picked Ghost Dog, uh, because of the connection with the, uh, the assassin in, in our, uh, Fallen Angels movie that we did last, last time. Um, and, um, it's it's a charming movie. It's it's probably one of it. I think it is. Um, it was sort of a breakthrough for Jarmish into the mainstream, such as it is. As much as we could call him mainstream, um, which he is not still. Um, but um, he's had a couple other. Uh, he's had had at least one other since then um, that was able to have pretty wide um, audiences. Um, but Ghost Dog uh, really did it for him, and um, you know it has a great cast and and is a tremendous performance by Forrest Whitaker. Uh, and I think it, one of the more overtly philosophical films uh, that we've dealt with in this podcast and um, in that uh, throughout it is uh, um, sprinkled these aphorisms, uh, these segments from, um, you know, the, the one of the books that expresses the philosophy of Bushido um, uh, that is important in, in samurai history. Um, and, and I thought it off also, uh, an entertaining film in many respects. Um, so, so I wanted to talk about it and, um, uh, you know, there's a number of things we can, uh, discuss. Um, but also I threw in coffee and cigarettes into the mix because there's a fair amount of crossover, uh, despite the fact that it's a totally different uh, theme. There's some interesting references, et cetera, in coffee and cigarettes. And I think it's a good film to sort of display Jarmusch's talent for taking the mundane and, and making it, um, uh, watchable first of all, and, uh, revealing how, how interesting and important, uh, the mundane is in our, in our daily lives. Absolutely. Uh, the mundane and also, yeah, in some ways, I would also the arcane in coffee and cigarettes. It's like yeah. the 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 segment with the the white, the whites, uh, the white stripes. Megan, uh, talking yeah, Megan about Jack White, right? The, yeah, where they're talking about the Tesla coil. It's like, well, well, that's interesting. Um, yeah, so I thought that was cool. And I did love, uh, I always have loved uh, Ghost Dog. I thought it was uh, a wonderful movie 
about well mafia and the assassins but that is like really the anti-godfather it's like here's and anti-goodfellas in many ways it's uh showing these guys to be quite profoundly pedestrian marginal characters uh on the peripheries of society they're not living in mansions or uh they don't have great wealth uh everything's up for sale uh for everything uh, vargo's the head of the mob everything's up for sale or vargas is up Var- vargo yeah everything's up for sale um rent is back um they're late on their payments yeah you <laughs> so know like it's are- just these are even um, more, um, uh, I guess, pedestrian mobsters than you know we see in The Sopranos. These are so. This is shot in, I think, Jersey, Jersey City, and you know, there's there's really nothing romantic at all about any of these um, two bit criminals. Um, and you know, certainly Vargo is this weird character who just isn't, you know, obviously in another sort of dimension himself um and and Forrest Whitaker's character Ghost Dog is I think one of the more compelling criminals in film um and also consistent so I, I thought those are those are interesting features of that character and I now I, I think Forrest Whitaker is an excellent actor and a perfect pick uh for for this film yeah, it worked out. Yeah, he he was uh, certainly the star of the show. Uh, it was brilliant. Um, I love how he chewed up the scenery uh, mm-hmm. in a very sedate, dare I say, samurai-like way. Uh, yeah. I th- I thought it was uh, very cool. I thought the how the mobsters were portrayed yes was hilarious vargo was weird uh all of the those the table of three uh was uh very weird uh each one of them was very weird like talking about passenger pigeons the other guy was into hip-hop for some reason and, uh, Sonny. Sonny yeah. Sonny, and i think it was public enemy right yeah public yeah public right nwa i couldn't recall yeah, and that scene where they introduce uh, the table of three in the storage room of, uh, or a meat locker of, uh, no, it was a storage room of uh, some restaurant was just hilarious because it's, it, they were explaining how the name Ghost Dog and how, well, uh, these, uh, how racialized gangsters tend to adopt uh code names based on animals and stuff mm-hmm. and um there was a bit of mockery about that and then they go out and they and they're like so i want you to go get sammy the snake and uh so on and so forth and they all have code names too and it was just like oh my this is this is delightful yeah so a couple of things about Jarmusch that are endearing to me. One is he, he most of his films are, are driven by dialogue and very little action um, sort of set pieces where, you know, minutes can go by and, and, and almost nothing happens. 
Um, but you, you are compelled, uh, you feel compelled by either the acting or the dialogue. Um, and, um, in just a, a brief story about that, when Jarmusch decided he was going to get into making movies, um, he was in, uh, um, I think it was Columbia or some other, I don't recall which of his universities he was in at the time. Um, I, I know he'd gotten a BA at Columbia, I think. But anyway, he was, he's now pursuing movie making and he, he was told to write a script and he took it to his professor. Um, and the professor criticized it for having too little going on, too little action. Uh, so he went back and he rewrote it with even less action. Um, <laughs> And, and gave it to the professor who then um, gave him a, a good amount of praise and um, said co- that he was courageous for, you know, taking his own way. And, and actually then you uh, hired um, Jarmusch on one of his first official film gigs. So I, th- I think that's a great story um, that, you know, tells us a little bit about this guy and, and his something about the philosophy of his movies. Yes. And uh, like I, I would still put this in like the early Jarmish. Yeah. Uh, like he's working through some themes in all of those early films, which is the intersection of two dying cultures mm-hmm. uh, or at least one dying culture. Um, uh, like I'm thinking of like like Stranger Than Paradise. Right. Same, same yeah. thing going on. Uh, Dead Man, similar thing going on. Mystery Train, uh, Down, down by, by Law. law. Yeah, yeah, Down by Law, I think, strikes me as an excellent example of that, right? This yeah. intersection of cultures and eras. Yes. And uh, in this, uh, like the two cultures uh, intersecting are the Italian-American uh, culture, uh, the mafioso culture, uh and uh feudal japan and uh, i thought that was just uh fascinating uh it was a uh, well done uh i was looking at after i watched uh ghost dog i just did a imdb search for uh other movies about the intersection of cultures and uh they were all like super violent or uh just didn't strike me as very good movies. I've, I've seen some of them. And uh, so Jar- Jarmusch has really car- had really carved out an interesting niche here. And the way he explores it, in particularly Ghost Dog, where he shows um, the tension of two cultures uh, intersecting, uh, yet he does so in a comical way. Uh, like by pointing out the absurdity, like with the French guy who uh, goes, yes, yeah, yeah, who, uh, yeah, who does, uh, who's Ghost Dog's best friend, him pointing out the in the insane Spanish guy who's building a boat in the middle of some urban center, and it was shot, it was shot in, um, Jersey, but it was uh, explicitly for any city in urban America, uh, any urban center in America. You got right. that because of the license plates on the cars where it's like the industrial, industrial state. Right. Yeah. You know? Yeah, exactly. 
And I just thought that was fascinating. Like, you know, because like that guy building the boat and it was just a one-off shot, like build, uh, building the boat in the, in the alleyway, um, that conveyed the entirety of, uh, what's going on in this movie. It's like, yes, here's somebody who is displaced from their own culture, engaging in what is to them a completely normal thing to do, normal by their culture, yet in the present context is completely absurd and played for humor, not despair, not uh, it is an existentially weighty theme, but not played with the existential weight of something like uh, Ingmar Bergman or something. And mm-hmm. I thought that I thought that was uh, awesome. Uh, I thought that, yeah. Yeah, it, it is. And and I think it's interesting that, first of all, so the, the Japanese culture that is being clashed with here is by, is um, entirely portrayed by an African-American um, who uh, is, has adopted the samurai code from this book. And books play a huge part of this movie as well. Um, as a way uh, to deal with, you know, um, some traumatic past uh, as a way for him to find a role for himself in this, in this, in the culture of whatever city this is. Um, uh, that somehow um, enables him to drift easily uh, among the cultures as well. Um, and that, that I thought was fascinating and, and is a, I think a nod to, actually to Bushido itself, which owes its origin. And Bushido is the general code uh, uh, that is used to describe samurai um, virtue. But, you know, there's actually a pretty broad range of virtues and types of Bushido as well. But if you think about where that comes from, it's also that sort of bridging of cultures because uh, philosophies as diverse as Taoism and Confucianism, um, as well as Shinto and others, end up in Bushido. Uh, and of course, Taoism and, and Confucianism come from mainland China and make their way into Japanese culture and then become part of this Bushido code for the samurai. So I think, yeah, and, and you're, you're right. This, so this, the ice cream guy, uh, I forget his name. Um, he doesn't speak any English and goes Doug and he never are able to communicate in the same spoken language, but somehow have this bond and friendship. Um, and Louie, right. Who is for whom ghost dog is the retainer. And Louie is the dime. I think it is a dimo is what do you call it? De demo. Uh, yeah. Uh, the samurai master. <laughs> right. Um, yeah. You know, and th- these are also a bridging of cultures and there's a some sort of mutual respect for them uh, among them as well. So th- that that's fascinating. I think this is a theme that also Jarmusch deals with quite a bit. Yeah. And uh, another uh, a- aspect to this movie, which I, th- I think is fascinating, is in a, in a general claim, uh, Anglo-American analytic philosophy of the last uh, hundred odd years has really prioritized linguistic communication saying, Mm -hmm. saying it, well, depending on who you 
who you're talking about, either the bedrock to all of reality, or at least the bedrock to all of ethics and virtue. And um, this movie really just takes the piss out of that whole concept. You know, like, because here we here we have two people. I'm talking about Ghost Dog and his French best friend who don't understand a word of what, of the other person. Um, they don't understand what he, each other is talking about, yet they can still play a game, chess, take that, Wittgenstein, uh, <laughs> and how they manage to, in their own way, flourish. You know, they manage to, there is a sense that obtains amongst them that is has nothing to do with language. And I think that is fascinating. Uh, I think, like, here we have this real claim about meaning and reality that it is based on sense and not based on syntax. Uh, and I think that that's that's not pseudo profound. That is profound. That's like a whole re that's a rejection of a lot of what has been going on since 1900 uh, in uh, North America in philosophy. And I think that's a really, really big statement uh, for a movie to just adopt. Um, so Jarmish really knows what he's doing here. I, I, I thought it was really cool. Um, and that is all play. And again, how, ex with the exception of the final scene, so much of it is played for laughs. Yeah, um, it's delightful. It's, it's yeah. funny, you know, and, and their dialogue is, you know, when there is dialogue between people who actually speak the same language, it's quite funny. Also, even when the, the French guy is speaking, I don't know if, how much I'm sure you you're a Canadian, so you're legally obliged to know French, I suppose. Um, but <laughs> I um, I didn't have a version with um, subtitles for the French, but uh, picked up that there were some jokes being made uh, even even by him. So he he the French guy is desperate to make some connection with someone and then turns to Perline. I think it is this little girl and asks her, does she speak French? Does she play chess? Right. And. So I thought, you know, the fact that, and I don't know if the the uh, theater version had subtitles for that either. Well, I've never seen this in the theater. Uh, however, I've seen multiple versions of this, uh, the DVDs, um, and various digital versions, and I've never seen one where the French is uh, subtitled. Okay. Uh, yeah, I think that's on purpose. That's quite yeah, purpose. Yeah, like Jarmish is doing something here very explicitly. And what's going on in the French, uh, interestingly, is there's there's very little miscommunication uh, existing between uh, the French guy and the two Anglophone characters okay. um, that he interacts with. Like they manage to communicate quite well. Uh, without language at all. Uh, okay. Yeah, like, I got that sense. Yeah, like the French guy. Like um, one one thing that is noticeable 
Uh, one, one, just an isolated example, the Spanish shipbuilder uh, shot uh, the French guy. The French guy says he's clearly, he's clearly mad. And uh, Ghost Dog, without understanding that, says, oh, he's a fool. You know, like right after it, it's like, oh, you, you, yeah. So like there's communication here going or there's extra linguistic communication or uh, communication resides at a level that is beyond that is that is under language, ontologically prior to language. And I find that like that claim is just awesome. You know, it, it's a big claim. Um, it, it is. It is a big claim. And, and as you say, you're right to invoke Wittgenstein, right? So whereof one cannot speak, one has a ton of other things to communicate or ways to communicate. So and that and that's that's exactly that's what film does uh, to begin with um, all the time. It communicates in this nonverbal um, uh, language that's incredibly rich. Um, and, and Jarmusch uses that language, I think. Uh, to full extent um, in all his films, I'd say. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Like, yeah, where one cannot speak, what will one do? One will take out the mafia. One will form a friendship. Uh, one will play chess. Um, yeah. What will one will instantiate culture where one cannot speak? That's what one does. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, I thought it. Yeah. The only thing I found uh, a little. Um, troubling was the the lack of women characters in this um you know perlene being the exception this girl um but um and of course the vargo's daughter who is this sort of just sort of a ghost in the background in a couple of scenes um and i'm i'm not sure if that's again conscious um if it's a if it's a um you know a a way to address these cultures um, specifically the, you know, the criminal underworld in, in this city. Um, but, um, it does seem a bit dated on viewing now, um, that, um, you know, there's, there's no, there's no really, um, there's no real women characters, um, playing any role in this. Yeah. I, yeah, that's a, that's an excellent point. Uh, I think it's, uh, Maybe it has something to do with the particularity of cultures, of the cultures they were looking at. The samurai culture uh, was not exactly friendly to women. Uh, right. Neither is the mafia culture. Um, and it just might be that. Um, sure. You know, but yeah, I, I do take your point at the same time. Like the women are portrayed as, well, they're hardly portrayed at all and they are ephemeral and it, at a distance, uh, under the best of circumstances, with the exception of Perlene. And, and that might be some, that might be the point. And that's why I thought maybe it's a point that Perlene is now, you know, we've heard Ghost Dog and a couple others say uh, that this is an end of an era, right? And at, at the ending, when there is no Ghost Dog or, um, and all that's going to be left is this Louie and whatever tattered remains of his organization there are. Um, you know, Perlene has now been reading um, what is the the name of the book? The um, Haga Haga Kure, uh, the Code of the Samurai. Yeah, um, and yeah. She looks at the camera like maybe she's she's next. She's gonna pick up the 
the um, you know the banner of of Ghost Dog. Absolutely, I that wasn't a throwaway shot at all. Uh, right. You know that that shot was profoundly meaningful, as was um, everything that Per Perline was doing in the movie, like her very inclusion in the movie. Um, was significant uh like from when she first met ghost dog to uh on the bench and points out the significance of the dog uh mm -hmm. which is i guess uh a symbol of death or impending death uh, uh yeah that's what i took it to be so it's a is a blackish dog black dog and it's yeah. Just kind of staring at him knowingly. Yeah. Um, and uh, her dialogue throughout was uh, was key to understanding a lot of what's going on. And also, it does a great job. Uh, she was uh, involved in uh, the humanization of Ghost Dog, uh, making him actually a character. Um, I think. Yeah, so she, he has someone who he basically the only other person he really interacts with in any sort of human way other than the ice cream um french guy um and she she's unafraid she's bold she speaks to him as an equal and he speaks to her in the same way and then they share this book so this book rashomon which of course is a is a nod to kurosawa's um rashomon um is um passed first from Vargo's daughter to uh to Ghost Dog and then to per Perline. And um that that I thought was interesting that that he is sharing um with her um in a in a way that we don't see him really sharing with anyone else. So yeah, it it does she does a lot to humanize him and, and comes across as a as some sort of um I don't know, equal um, in some way, somebody who is also making their way. Absolutely. Yeah. And uh, yeah, so I think she's a really important character, but she's the only really important female character uh, in this movie. Um, the other ones uh, are hardly even there, you know. Um, yeah, and messed up to the extent that they are. Um, what did you so let's uh talk about uh well oh i just a hilarious moment to me was when ghost dog is on his uh sorting out the mafia in the last half of the movie and he comes up to uh kill i was it sunny in who's in the bathroom yeah sunny is through the sink right yeah yeah yeah, yeah that was uh, certainly a, a very interesting kill. Uh, uh, but I thought it was hilarious when he came up to Suddy's uh, duplex, it looked like, um, that Suddy's uh, super Cadillac gangster car, the front end of it was sticking out of the garage. Yes, you know, it was so you know, silly, and it's just like oh my it's a, it's like this says so this is just hilarious it's like so here's the, here's the big tough gangster driving in his uh super cool car from 20 years ago at least um with 
and the front end is sticking out of his small garage in what might be a duplex, you know, <laughs> and it, it was just like, oh my, you know, this, this is just... these, these, these little, these little, um, quips, visual comedy, uh, abounds in it. And it's, it's, it's quite well done. Um, the, the other thing is, uh, that I thought was quite funny was, um, Ghost Dog doesn't have his own vehicle, but he's got this little device, right? Like a Dick Tracy device. He can kind of hijack any any car he needs at any time. Um, and, and I mean, these are not samurai things. These are more like ninja things he's doing, um, but also quite humorous. And and then, of course, he's always got a CD ready to pop in the in the CD player uh, whenever he's cruising along in these stolen cars. Yeah, Ghost Dog was styling. You he know? was great. Uh, yeah. he's, a, he's a really good uh, protagonist, I thought. And, um, you know, uh, without being, you know, sort of uh, James Bond arrogant, he comes across as very confident and cool and collected and embodying the samurai mythos, I'd say. Absolutely. Um, yeah. And doing so in a way that actually, you know, I could I could see somebody like that. Like I, 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 like uh, I'm doing this podcast from a major urban center and I'm sure there are ghost dogs out. It wouldn't surprise me if there were ghost dogs out there, yeah. you know, uh, because he wasn't, he was a very, he was a, an embodiment of a culture that was not over the top, even though like, yes, he did have this, uh, this key fob decoder, which, uh, now, uh, now I guess they exist. Uh, there's, oh, oh, and it was they were ahead of its time, I guess. Uh, yeah, like, but not like wickedly. It wasn't like a a helicopter in a briefcase, <laughs> you know. <laughs> but he also has a suitcase full of other tools that he uses. For instance, the plumbing tools. Yeah, which he when he needs to un, you know undo this plumbing. It's yeah, quite fascinating. Uh, you know, he's this sort of. Um, yeah. It's a. It's a. Uh, uh, an every man sort of uh, dream, I guess. Oh yeah, well yeah, um, and the just the profound ineptitude of the mafia in this movie was hilarious because I actually yes they were like they were like Sopranos level inept. Um, like I'm thinking of a few of the Sopranos characters, yeah. but uh, even worse, like because none of them had any money. Like even they were always broke, right? And they yeah, and they were behind in their payments. It's it's fascinating. Yeah. Like Vargas Vargas's castle was up for sale, you know. And how did Ghost Dog get into the grounds? He said he was a real estate agent. Yes, <laughs> you know, like <laughs> yeah. I thought it. I thought it was hilarious. I also thought um, I, my favorite one of my favorite scenes in the movie was when he came across the hunters. Oh yes, yeah. Like so, this is interesting. Yeah, go ahead. No, no. I I just thought it was like a fascinating little commentary about race in America, because yep. uh, much of this movie was explicitly, or there there was uh, there was no con concern about race between Louis and Ghost Dog, so you kind of think, well, maybe we're in a post-racial world if 
or some hypothetical post-racial world. And then there's that scene with uh, the white supremacist uh, hunt redneck hunters. Right. Um, and it's clear that what in their hunting of the bear, uh, there this was essentially the immiseration of uh, racialized people. The right. same thing was going on, uh, the same... Uh, ideology uh right. drop and uh just how they're dealt with like uh there was a lot of killing in this last half of the movie and those two killings i was like yes so yeah, yeah. you know it's like right you know <laughs> uh so that's why i loved it i, I thought it was uh yeah, yeah. And, and so one one thing a note though um so the older weird of the three the guy who was obsessed with carrier pigeons or whatever yeah 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 he, he was an overt racist so he yes. used racial, racist terms um yes funny not so much right so he, he might also harbor similar views or at least use that language but he's also a fan of public enemy and is wrapping along with it um in his shower so there's also this difference in in um uh eras that's that's being played on and I think those characters and those scenes, but yeah, absolutely. So this is the, in the, the, the rural scene, right. Where we see these hunters and, and ghost dog executes them <laughs> rather, uh, um, hastily, um, and to everybody's delight. Um, also it refers to the Bushido code as well. So, you know, the, the, this code is obviously, it doesn't, um, you know, violence is part of it. And the use of violence by the samurai class against certain other people just simply because of their class is actually sanctioned in that code. So I thought that was interesting. Um, that without any moral compunction at all, he executes them for simply being these racist bastards. So, yeah, yeah. And it's just, yeah, like the samurai must act decisively when, right. when a decision is made. And it's like, yeah, that's nice. You know, like, yeah. So that, I thought it was a, I thought it was a great movie. I was sad when ghost dog uh, dies at the end. I, I thought that was, yeah. that was sad, uh, but it worked. But I understand given the narrative arc of the movie, how that, how something like this had to happen. Yeah, it was consistent with the code because yeah. even in that moment, he was still um, retainer, you know, mm -hmm. so that was consistent with his code and he never deviated from that code. Yeah. And there was there was no happy ending for him for him, just like there's no happy ending for a culture that is on its uh, decline. Right. And that actually I thought was addressed too in in a reading from the the book um that says that you know we shouldn't be we shouldn't try to cling on to the past so much you know we have to adapt to the future and let me let me give you my well let me give you my a little story because i met jim jarmish i wanted to tell you this little story um back in 1999 um i i was on a I was married once before, and uh, I was on my honeymoon with my uh, um, first wife in Rome. Uh, my 
um, PhD advisor, not my advisor, but my chair of my department and friend had <laughs> um, booked us to a hotel in, in Rome. And we, we, we paid our way, but the hotel was wonderful. It was right next to the, um, uh, oh shoot. Um, Never mind, because I'm having a senior moment. In any case, it was in a wonderful location in Rome. And one night we're walking around. Um, we had just had a dinner and we're walking home. And I saw this very tall, gaunt fellow with a shock of white hair. And I said, uh, um, my wife at the time, I said, you know, I think that's Jim Jarmusch. And he's just hanging out. He's having a cigarette, of course, in, in an alley in Rome. Um, in the middle of the night. And so I'm like, you know, I'm just going to go ask. So I went up to him. I said, um, excuse me, are you Jim Jarmusch? And he said, yeah. And so uh, we had a conversation. I said, oh, you know, I, of course, I said, I, I'm a fan of your your work I, and really love Down by Law and Stranger Than Paradise. And he said, thank you. And I, we were chatting about Rome. And I said, why are you in Rome? And he said, well, I'm here to premiere uh, Ghost Dog, my new film. So um, I thought that was pretty cool. Uh, and probably my only so far uh, brush with um, directorial greatness uh, in the film world. And um, yeah, I, I kind of treasure that little chance meeting. Absolutely. That sounds amazing. Yeah. And directorial greatness. Yes. Jim Jarmusch is a great director. He's a, he's one of the He's one of my uh, cinematic heroes. Um, still Mine alive. too. Yeah. And, 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 you know, the way that he has been able to maintain his independence is something that only a few directors are able to do and, and to continue to, to do that and, and produce ex and make exactly what he wants to make is, I think, laudable. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So um, what... Uh... Which vignettes from coffee and cigarettes worked for you or uh, did the whole movie work for you? Um, yeah. When well, yeah. So it's an uneven, you know, some of them are better than others. I, I think I just want to talk briefly about the philosophy of it first and then and then talk about the vignettes. I, I think that, again, this is a comment on the passing of an era. So these. Um, interludes are all very much set pieces they're obviously artificial you know it's not like these are actually uh, occupied um, by others at the time they are like little plays and each of them is i think um well all of them put together are, are a commentary on something that that's important and that is the the idea of two people uh, gathering over coffee and cigarettes, uh, I suppose, um, just for the purpose of, of uh, bantering and catching up or talking about, you know, whatever's on their mind um, without necessarily, um, you know, doing what we're doing, you know, talking a lot, uh, because actually the conversation in many of these is very spare um, and odd and also a little, um, you know, uh, they, they, they fill these tiny little niches of interests. And I thought that's really nice because we should, we should kind of relish these moments. Those are like, and that reminded me of this little chance meeting with Jarmusch in, in an alley in Rome. It was just a couple of words spoken 
Um, but you know, that, that little vignette, right. Is so important in, in my memory, of course. Um, but also, you know, somehow formative, all of these little conversations mean something. Yes. Um, and they are spare and, uh, they're magical. Many of them are magical and about the, well, one of them, champagne, uh, I think might be the the last one of the two old guys. That one is clearly about the ending of an era. Um, it's beautiful. Yeah, you know uh, where they're playing the Mauler and uh, or where the Mauler is playing. Uh, it's not that they were playing it. It's it was just part of the Earth's harmonic harmonic re- resonance. Yes. And I yeah. thought that was a, which is a unique theme that comes up like the the if i think there are like uh three themes in uh, or four okay so like the importance of the little uh sparse conversation that's one theme uh the second theme that is echoed is how music and medicine are linked that's mentioned mm-hmm. a few times uh with uh, Tom Waits saying that he was a doctor. Right. And then uh, RZA, right? Yeah, RZA saying that he's also a a kind of doctor, although uh, his uh, treatments for uh, smoker's cough, uh, I'm not sure are medically sanctioned. Um, So that's the other theme, medicine and music. And then the Earth's harmonic resonance it's uh this other theme that keeps on playing up playing through like how there's just currents going through the going across the surface of the earth which uh in a repetition which uh is i think um a pretty cool theme uh and those are, i guess those are about the only ones i noticed but i thought it, these are interesting things to uh to celebrate in film and like this film i guess was it wasn't until the end where it became a film like uh this was shot over five years uh or over longer than five years and it was just i guess oh here's a moment where we can get iggy pop and tom wicks together let's do that and let's let's have that conversation. Um, and the say, let's have uh, Kate Blanchett talking with Kate Blanchett and uh, and Alfred Molina, uh, Molina and Steve Coogan. Yeah, yeah, and it, it's just like yeah, and uh, and just uh, get capturing these moments and then putting it all together and the white twins and putting it all to get together. And it's like, Oh yeah. And look at this. Isn't this a bit of cinematic magic? Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. So I thought it was, I thought it was super cool. And uh, to me, the, the most hilarious one of them was uh Tom Waits and Iggy pop. I just thought, because I love Tom Waits every time. Yeah. Yeah. Tom Waits is in a movie. It's like, oh my God, he's just perfect. You know? he, he plays as as my friend uh, mentioned. Uh, you know Kim. Kim mentioned yeah. that her favorite Renfield is Tom Waits, and I have to agree. He he chews that that role up in the uh, the drac. You know, um, Coppola's Dracula. Oh yeah, he's great, and um, even in movies that aren't so good, 
he's amazing. Like, yeah. uh, like uh, there's this uh, Tony Scott uh, movie uh, called uh, Domino. Okay. Uh, if you've ever seen it. Anyways, no. Tom Waits just has a cameo in this as an ins- as uh, a preacher uh, who drives around in a Cadillac. And th- it, it is a cameo, but it is really an essential. It's the part of the movie that makes it sing. It's it's great. Um, everything that Tom Waits is in uh, is amazing. Uh, yes, and uh, in the Dracula, his Ren, his Renfield is is amazing too. Uh, it's, his spellbinding, uh, and yeah. he's a great musician. Uh, he, he is a fantastic yeah. musician as well. A, a theme also that struck me from all of the little vignettes too is that, or from many of them, is is um, uh, sort of the inability to communicate uh, again that somehow language fails, um, and and. Either it's not necessary or attempts to speak get um, misinterpreted. Um, in you know the first one with um, Stephen Wright and Roberto Benigni, um, again they're they're barely speaking the same language, um, and you know it's it's sort of an absurdist uh, one. Um, that's uh, it's a lot of fun. Um, they they have these they they that's when the this first notion that coffee speeds up your dreams uh come uh and and benini right the he he wants to so stephen wright is going to be late for his dentist appointment until benini offers to take it for him and so it's it's absurd and um it's not clear that they you know whether they've had mixed sing- signals or um you know, this is just the nature of communication itself. Um, yeah, it's, you don't know, you're not sure if Benini knows that he's going to the dentist. Right. <laughs> he's know? excited about it. Um, yeah. He says, thank you. Uh, yeah. but, and it, it's delightful to to watch that interaction. And of course, they're both totally hyped up on nicotine and caffeine. Um, yes. which is, uh, you know, of course, that's another theme. Uh yeah. Uh, yeah. Like I have a, I have a dentist appointment coming up for a tooth for a cleaning in a, in a couple of weeks. And I got to tell you, I'm not nearly as excited for this as Benini is for his. You know? right. <laughs> yeah. It, it was, so, but, uh, but yeah. And that, and, and then in the, so in the, in the weights and um, Iggy pop one, again, they, they kind of, they seem to miss a beat with their communications, um, so to speak, both being musicians. Um, there's a um, tension, there's a undertone of jealousy. There's, um, there's a boredom with each other too, that comes across. That's kind of striking. Yeah. And, and at least for Tom Waits, it's like he's gaslighting Iggy pop intentionally. Yeah. You know, and it's like, how far could he go with this? You know, (laughs) it's hilarious. Uh, Yes, but there is a tension. And then like when Iggy Pop talks about the drummer and Tom Waits is like, are you saying my drummer sucks? You know, like, you know, and and just like terrorizing Iggy Pop, you know, which, yeah, poor Iggy Pop. But, um, (laughs) you know, like, uh, yeah. And then so I think that, so that that's that's part of the theme, right? That these 
yeah. that communication again, again, like in, in ghost dog, our verbal attempts to reach each other sometimes fail or maybe fail a lot. Um, but there is something in the ritual of the coffee and the cigarettes that keeps us at the table. Yeah. But like, and maybe it's that being at the table. That is the process or that is the event. Uh, it's not the communication. The communication is is fraught. It's extraneous. It's misleading. Uh, mm. What really is going on here is just sitting at the table. Right. You know, that, like, that happens with the French. So the French guy, Isaac, is it Isaac? Yeah. Bencole. Um, yeah. Yeah. He, yeah. He meets so. an, yeah. Another French guy and another one where they have, again, similar. T- yeah. The whole conversation is meaningless. It's about how there's nothing wrong. Yeah. Yeah. It's just the very event of sitting at the table. The situation, not the dialogue, is what is where is the locus of meaning and i find that to be fascinating that's a huge claim it's a a beautiful claim too because this this ritual right is meaningful and across various cultures Mm -hmm. Uh, and various times Uh, and, and in fact it unifies time like you know like which is explicit like with the mauler uh the champagne thing at the end where it's like okay so we're talking about uh two different temporal er- eras here and uh they all come together uh they become completely synchronous uh and i thought with the inclusion of the music from a putatively distant past a nearly forgotten past is now present and there's no reason for it to be present except that it's there and is is it whose mind is it in it's not in one of the characters it's in both of the characters minds do you hear it it's i hear it you know like and and to me that is like these are these are some serious metaphysical claims (laughs) um that is a particularly beautiful uh vignette um that i do think you're right it ties it together as a movie yeah Um, yeah. So, yeah, like, yeah, long story I, I, short, Jarmusch is great. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, so I wanted, there were two I wanted to ask you about. Um, so I, I thought um, Molina and um, Coogan's was um, particularly uh, sad because <laughs> uh, Molina comes across as sort of, desperate for this connection again um with with coogan um and recognition and uh again he he whips out this so he whips out the the um chart of their ancestry and shows them where they're related and and it's meaningful to molina but of course coogan playing i think the the character that coogan always plays in his other works I, i don't know if you're a fan of him but I, I, I've always loved his Alan Partridge stuff. Um, and he came across as very Alan Partridge-y in, his, in that one, I thought. Um, but I thought that was touching and, and sort of sad because um, uh, they're, they're just unable to connect. He's unable to make this connection. And, uh, and it's hurtful. 
Yeah, uh, it's, it's it's really because Steve Coogan is such a jerk. Yeah. And, you know, like Molina's just like trying, like he's literally saying, yeah, we're cousins. Isn't that cool? You know, and maybe we could do something with that. That'll benefit both of us. And then uh, Coogan's like falsely, I think, uh, saying, oh, well, I think I'm way more famous and cool than you and associating with you is going to diminish me until Coogan finds out that Molina is uh, talking about uh, is talking to Spike Jones. Right. You know, and then and then like after uh, after really being really rude to to Molina uh, in ways that uh, you know weren't weren't funny. Um, no, they were capricious. They were, yeah. um, yeah, it's like, oh, I don't care. Right. Yeah, really bad. Yeah. yeah, and then Molina finally is like, yeah, okay, well, uh, too late now, man. Uh, you've basically accused me of all sorts of things. Um, and uh, so, uh, I'm out of here, and you have the bill. Uh, good luck. I'm going to go to a meeting with uh, with uh, Spike Jones, <laughs> you know, you know, and I thought that was like, uh, yeah, that that was. Uh, that was sad. I also thought uh, the well, you said you had a couple that you wanted you thought were sad. Which other ones? Well, um, you know, I thought the champagne one was was um, beautifully sad, um, but I I didn't. The other one I thought that was noteworthy that I really wanted your input in was this um, delirium one where um, the Wu-Tang Clan, um, uh, uh, you know, Bill Murray sits down with them. And um, of course, they don't drink caffeine and they're going on about how caffeine leads to delirium. And then Bill Murray is, I guess, moonlighting as a uh, waiter in this place in in, um, drinking, guzzling coffee bad diner coffee out of a you know the jug and i i was trying to understand that i i don't know what the point of that whole segment was because they're they seem they seem you know kind of smitten by the fact that this is bill murray and i think bill murray is the least important part of that segment so I'm not sure what Jarmusch was doing, if this was somehow, because actually he uses Mur- Bill Murray in, a, in a other films, I thought. Um, one of his not so good ones, the zombie one recently, um, The Dead Won't Die. Yeah. And uh, uh, he's also in uh, The Limits of Control and right. uh, Broken Flowers. Yeah, yeah, Broken Flowers, which is a fine film. Yeah. yeah. Um, yeah. But I'm not sure what that was about. So I wanted to know your thoughts. Well, I think it was like uh, just. Uh, I think it did something that like actually brought some of the vignettes together because again the theme of uh, musician as doctor is echoed in that. Uh, cool. So I think it, that was a nice little touch. Mm-hmm. Uh, the dreams going fast thing, which is mentioned, is mentioned, was mentioned in the Benini. Uh, clip is which was the first clip is also mentioned in um, the Bill Murray clip so I think it I think it structurally did a lot of work uh, 
unifying uh, this. And I think it, like, it perhaps did say something about uh, the nature of uh, acting. Uh, and is this, is this mimesis? Uh, is it important at all? Or is this just a whole new reality? I think like that might have been hinted at in it. And that's all. That's uh, the only thing I kind of saw going on there. But I think really uh, it was just hilarious putting uh, two members of the Wu-Tang Clan in there with Bill Murray. Uh, I think that's like just uh, awesome. Uh, yeah, I mean, you, you like to watch these just to see the yeah. celebrities being yeah. themselves in the sort of parallel, yeah, parallel world of the movie. Um, and yeah, I, I mean, it's a it, these are all sort of ways. And I, I'm glad you brought up music as medicine because it's also worth noting that Jim Charmish is a musician um, and actually started as a musician before he went into film. Uh, so music is quite important for him. And I think that is that is a that's a point he is making, probably. Yeah, and I suppose like the like the a point, you know, like that's that that occurs in Plato. Uh, that claim, uh, I forget which dialogue uh, when they're talking about the soul. Oh uh, yeah, so yeah, for Plato, har- har- harmony, right? Yeah, like that's the higher form of music is. Is yeah. a a way to experience um, truth. Yeah, and uh, it, and then Nietzsche talks of, has a few aphorisms about how uh, he is a he how music uh, functions as a as a means of uh, unif- of treating the soul. Like so, there like there are some moments at least in philosophy where music has been linked to medicine and harmony has been linked to medicine so there is like but i think that is uh maybe just fortuitous uh i don't think uh jarmish was was quoting nietzsche um or or simius i think it was simius in uh the dialogue who's who puts that forward uh, but anyway uh, yeah, but I just thought uh, it is a nice notion. Uh, I think there is some traction to it because, like, music is like music is taken as the as explicitly a non-representational art form. And then, so what is the function of music? Well, Merleau-Ponty and Deleuze say uh, that it's basically functions to express time. Uh, and then what is the like that's what it does as an art form even Ingarden has some stuff about how what is the purpose of music in his uh, the problem of the identity of the musical work of art Uh, one of his claims is well he does say that it's completely non-representational so then it is it has an expressive function what does it express it expresses temporal uh temporality itself um and then what is then the set of inferences that could be taken from that or that could be generated from that it could be okay well what is the function of time time is that which unifies the soul um Mm -hmm. so music is time 
time is the unification the unification and the and the maintenance of the soul thus taught thus uh music is medicine you know you yeah. could you could get something like that from it uh so well, that's cool <laughs> yeah and that makes that champagne vignette at the end all the more meaningful i think um because they both hear this music that isn't you know it's just in there as far as we can tell it's they're hearing it together in their own minds yeah right uh, yeah like that that's what is so amazing about that and that is like that is like a super duper phenomenological point right like you know it's like here we hear our minds are expressions of and on our minds are expressions of an ontogenetic field uh they are the consequence of an ontogenetic field which uh or a phenomenological field which that's like straight from Husserl that's a rejection of Kant uh and you can even trace it back to uh, Spinoza um with his concept of yes what is the what is nature it is nature and naturing nature it is a process uh a generative process and like that's super duper awesome what how does this relate back to the champagne vignette you got this notion that these two these uh these two minds are not individual uh that they are just uh individuated expressions or that they are expressions of something far more of a more primordial unity the unity of a multiplicity and like i want to point out like that is super duper cool the proof of it they are both experiencing the same thing right. <laughs> you know and, and the, the film i think then acts um as a whole uh, to to tie this theme together again with the sort of the this tesla bit about the earth as a, a, a conductor i think a conductor of acoustical resonance so this notion of acoustics right the sound this this beat or or whatever it is that ties all of this together um and and allows our minds to connect um even over our failed communications at a table with coffee and cigarettes is i think quite quite uh, in, insightful and moving yeah right yeah it really is fascinating and uh yeah they were great films uh, yeah, and I, I, I'm, I appreciate your watching them with me and, and I've enjoyed this conversation. So and I'm, now I'm interested in what's next, my friend. All right. Uh, well, I was thinking this is entirely from Ghost Dog. Uh, Le Samurai by Jean-Pierre Melville uh, is what I recommend. Uh, okay. And uh, yeah, I'm looking for the year here. It was... Uh, 1967 uh, French movie uh, by Jean-Pierre Melville Le Samurai and it's uh, starring Alan Delon and it is uh, awesome <laughs> okay well I'm excited to watch this I've never seen it um, but I've found it and um, I'm looking forward to watching it and talking about it with you all right, David. Thank you so much for this conversation. And I, yeah, it was awesome. I love talking about Jarmish. Uh, yeah, 
And these two, these two Jarmish films were, were really, 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 really great. Uh, yeah. So, uh, thank you so much. And, uh, until next time. Talk to you soon. Yeah.